0: And Edmund's response was, I want this to close at $72 a share for all the other shareholders. There's probably going to be a cost of between the liability and what you'll have to pay. Let's say it's $450 million. I'm effectively going to give you, HSBC, that money by taking $450 million less for my shares. So everybody else, you know, if you have 100 shares, you're going to get 7200 bucks. If you have a million shares, you're going to get 72 million. For my big chunk of shares, instead of getting $72 a share, I would get what that total is minus $450 million.
1: My guest today is Dan Gross. Dan is an economics editor and a columnist at Yahoo Finance. He's also a financial journalist, historian, and author of several best selling books. His latest book is titled A Banker's Journey How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. According to a former World Bank president, Edmund J. Safra was the greatest banker of his generation. Safra founded several banks, including Republic National Bank, which was sold to HSBC for more than $10 billion. In addition to being an outstanding banker, Safra also gave away a huge part of his wealth to make the world a better place. I recently sat down with Dan and we talked about how Safra built a modern global empire built on a timeless principle that a banker must protect his depositors and avoid leverage and risk at any cost. All right, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it.
0: It's my my great pleasure to be here.
1: Folks, the name of the book is A Banker's Journey, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. Now, Dan, most people have no idea who Edmund J. Safra is, what bank he built, uh, uh, how he really used old world, I don't know, tradition, knowledge, experience, and created a behemoth and was considered at one time the greatest banker of his generation. So let's take a step back. How'd you get involved in this in, in doing a, a, a <coughs> biography on a man that was extremely secretive in building a humongous bank?
0: Uh, you know, by training and profession, I'm a financial journalist I've written about global finance for 30 years, and a historian. I've written several books on business history. I got a call about five or six years ago, um, and the colleague and they said, "You know, do you know who Edmund Safra is?" And I said, "Well, of course I do. I, you know, covered finance, and also on my mother's side, our, our family is uh, are Jews from Syria, which is where Edmund traces uh, his origins to." And they said, "You know, the foundation." Um, which he left behind when he died in 1999. They have a huge trove of documents, his personal archive, his family archive, his corporate archive, and transcripts of hundreds of interviews that had been done in the years after his death with people who knew him from his childhood in Beirut to his career in Brazil, New York, Switzerland. Um, So they had this vast pool of resources, and they asked if I would be interested in seeing if I could make something of that, if I was able to put together a coherent story um, that would describe not only his business career, but his personal journey and the journey of his family and his community. Uh, so in some ways I was set up a little by my origins and also by my professional career uh, to do precisely this.
1: Okay, so so Suffra started several banks, Trade Development Bank, right, it was one of them, but the one most people would know was Republic National Bank, which was uh, eventually sold to HSBC in 1999 for 10 billion or 10 and a half billion dollars or so, which uh, Safra owned close to 30%, I think it was, or somewhere That's right. thereabouts. Right. So um, he built a banking empire, but kept very, very secretive. And even though it was a public company, everyone can know, but he was very, very discreet. So he... Um, most people who, are, I, I remember this clearly back in the late 70s and, and early 80s, it was the bank where you'd get a television. you bring in deposits or so someone introduced you. We had, my, my grandfather used to go around opening accounts, and we had tons of TVs and microwaves and, 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 and uh, uh, blenders. I remember that. You used to go to a <laughs> public national bank, open up a CD or, or some type of uh, money market or what have you, and, and get a blender. So let's, let's go back for a second. Let's go back to the origins of who this guy was, what made him tick, and more importantly, how what he did uh, in terms of his background, in terms of his tradition, in terms of banking in the old country, how he took that to the modern era and created a global behemoth in the face of all new
0: change and still survived. That's right. So I think what's remarkable about him and why we talk about this banker's journey is that he was an heir. This was a multi-generational family bank, like the Rothschilds of the Middle East, right? So in Aleppo in the 19th century, there were the Safra brothers, or four brothers, and they had sent one to Istanbul, one to Cairo, one to Beirut. So he was born into this world in 1932. He was a prodigy. His father at the age of 10, 11, 12 was saying, Edmund is going to be the one to carry this forward. But he was a remarkable entrepreneur. So he wasn't just content to kind of manage the little bank that his father had in Beirut. He he went to Milan at the age of 15 to start trading and find a beachhead for his family because Beirut was no longer so hospitable. He went to Brazil. He moved the entire family there in 1952 and formed a financial company there. He was unable to form a bank because he wasn't a citizen. He started a bank, Trade Development Bank, in Switzerland in 1959. And then Republic as a startup in 1964 with $10 million in startup money. And as you said, it sold. Uh, 1999, 35 years later, for $10 billion. So he had this combination of someone who was born to be a banker in an almost aristocratic way, but who also was an immensely creative and entrepreneurial person who sought out growth and building new institutions all over the place. And even the the week of his death, he was building yet another financial institution. Um, So this was who he was. He was not simply someone who was content to kind of inherit what he had or or steward what he had. He saw these immense opportunities in this opening world of finance in the second half of the 20th century and really staked his claim there. So why
1: is his life a life that uh, a biography should be written about and and not only bankers, but uh, business people could learn from?
0: So I think there, it's like several books in one. Uh, to a degree, this is a story about the globalization of finance in the second half of the 20th century. Because he was a person who had these immense networks. You talked about Republic Bank. This was a bank for kind of middle class consumers in New York. And there, his innovation was, you know, at the time you couldn't compete by offering a higher interest rate and you couldn't give somebody a big premium to open an account. But Charles, I could give your brother unlimited incentives if he brought you in to open an account. And that's what the TVs were. The TV at the time cost 400 bucks. And he was taking these deposits and he was finding places to put them overseas where they could get a much higher interest rate because he had this network where he would place a loan with the Central Bank of Venezuela, the Philippines, South Africa, Euro dollars. This was something that typical US banks weren't doing. Okay, He had a remarkable global perspective
1: So so let's take a step back a second. For most people who don't know this, the way banks make money is they take in cheap deposits, right? They take in money. uh, People deposit their money with, with a bank. They pay a low interest rate, and the bank takes that money and does what with it?
0: Well, in our world, it makes mortgages. It lends money, credit cards, right? You think about consumer finance in the U.S., auto loans, all those sorts of things, which, of course, are decided by like an algorithm or a formula or a credit score, or even, you know, everybody's just bombarded with offers of credit. In Edmund Safra's world, again, he came from Beirut. His father had been a banker in Aleppo, Beirut in the 1920s, 1930s. You didn't lend to strangers. You lent to people you know, and paying it back was a matter of honor and your family's name. And he viewed that Like he was always perplexed that American banks would lend money to strangers or have 1-800 call for a loan. That was not how he viewed banking. He knew that he was responsible for the deposits of the people who entrusted their money to him. In many instances, these were people who were having to flee. They were having to flee persecution, start a new life somewhere. didn't matter to them. I mean, maybe it mattered to them they got some return, but what was most important for them to know that was that their money would be there. And he felt personally responsible for every single one of his depositors. So he was very careful about lending money out.
1: So the way banks make money is they take, and in this case we'll talk about Safra with his innovation, is banks take money at a very very low rate for it. They take that and they lend out at a very high rate or take risks with that at a very high rate. And the spread, the difference between what they pay out and what they get minus any losses that they have, because not everyone's going to pay back, Minus any losses is the way the bank, the net, what the bank makes between that. So they pay you out two percent in a CD. They make ten percent net by lending out for uh, I don't know a building. They make eight percent less expenses. Is that more or less right? That's right. Okay, so now and his,
0: we, yeah, go ahead. Well, his view was inst- okay. I'll give you two percent on your deposits, but instead of seeking to make eight or nine percent. He would take 5 or 6%, a loan that like the World Bank would guarantee, or the Export-Import Bank would guarantee, and then he wouldn't have to worry about credit losses or account for them. He took it personally, like if one of his executives made a loan that lost money, could be to GM, it could be to some other company, he would sort of yell at them as if they had committed a grave sin. In the banking industry, it's accepted that you will have a certain amount of losses. Sheets over the years, he had a very low level of leverage, which means he wasn't borrowing a lot of money for the bank itself, and he had very low credit losses.
1: So he was, um, and really... that was what
0: he prided himself. And that, and you know, over the long term, that can get you a lot more profits than having booms and busts, and then a year where you have to write off hundreds of millions of dollars in bad loans.
1: All right. So he built up on a very, very conservative basis. A tremendous amount of deposits from all his, his network of uh, contacts throughout the world who trusted him and knew they weren't investing in a bank they were investing behind Edmund J Safra and that he would make good on that money and not risk it in silly ways that banks have found out found ways to lose money as we saw in 08 09 during the financial crisis and instead would make a smaller percentage of Without swinging for the fences, but a steady one. And this, by the way, I think uh, you wrote in the book when the when Republic went uh, um, public uh, as, as a stock to when they were sold. I think it was like a twenty-five percent annualized return right. or something. Uh, you know, and, and also on think. his
0: his bank that he ran from nineteen fifty-nine that he sold in. It went public in nineteen seventy-two. His Swiss bank, its first Swiss bank. He sold it in eighty-two. Again, twenty-five percent annualized right. return. He formed another bank in nineteen eighty-eight. Sold it in 1998, 25% return. He didn't invest his own money in the stock market. He didn't like to invest in companies that other people controlled. But this is one of these are like Warren Buffett level types of returns mm-hmm. if you just put your equity with him, and went along for the ride. Yeah. In addition, um, he his company provided banking services that are really necessary for the global economy, but that a lot of banks weren't interested in, like trade finance. Factoring. Um, he had a large business in moving physical banknotes around the world, which in the 70s, you know, you had to do because you know, a tourist goes to Brazil, spends money, the money's got to come back. Very low margin business, but if you don't lose the the cash, you can't lose on it. And this was, you know, his grandparents were fi- moving gold from Aleppo to Kuwait in the 19th century. Moving banknotes around the world was the same type of business. Again. J.P. Morgan Chase, they weren't interested in that. Citigroup wasn't interested in that. He was, and it worked out really well.
1: Right. So these these were areas of the marketplace that um, nobody really people. The big banks weren't interested in going after, and he found. But I, I, what I find so amazing is the way you you, uh, you you really connect the dots. Is this all stems from his background of his family in Aleppo, Syria, in Beirut, Lebanon, where they. Uh, where a handshake was a handshake, a deal was a deal, and the most important thing a banker could do is protect the deposits of the cl- of the c- customer and not take risks with that money as a st- really Perfect. a steward of capital. And 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 what what you show throughout the book and throughout uh, um, uh, Suffra's life was he started banks from zero, from literally you know it seems like a telephone and his contact yeah. list, and banks just came they just flourished around them because he had amazing, amazing, amazing amounts of deposits come into him at a very low yeah. cost, if any, simply because of his name.
0: Yeah. And I think what's you know, you struggle sort of, why should someone read this today? Well, a, you know, it's like a fascinating story. We live in a world where every company, you know, they're hiring consultants to say, what is our mission? What is our purpose? All this ESG stuff. Um, millennials, they only want to go to work for a place that has a purpose that they understand. He never talked about like, what is our corporate purpose? He just lived it. And he knew what it was because this is who he was as a person, as a Safra, as a banker. And that purpose, as you said, was protect the depositors, be a steward of capital, finance activity that you know, provide the financing that is needed. And he saw this connection between having your not just your deposits protected, but your your livelihood, your personal safety, your ability to practice your religion. That was a matter of dignity for him. It wasn't just a matter of dollars and cents. It was a matter of dignity. If you were leaving somewhere, if you had a place where you could be safe physically, where you could be safe spiritually, and where you could have access to your assets. That was his sort of personal mission in life, because... The experience of his community, of people from Lebanon and the Jewish community in in Lebanon and Syria, which was a part, their experience in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s was one of displacement. They were leaving. They were looking to go to Europe, to anywhere that would take them. And a big part of the book talks not just about his banking activities, but about how he personally financed the construction of community centers, of synagogues, where people would flee from Beirut and he would give them a job his math teacher from from grade school. Guy was not a banker. He showed up in Buenos Aires. He had a job. When people flee and they wound up in New York. He would find a place for people. And he managed to do this while still having really profitable you know, companies.
1: Yeah, it wasn't charity in, in a sense. Of no. the, he was getting people to work and and doing um, amazing things. But I, what I find so fascinating is that throughout his life, even at the age, I think, of 15 years old, he donated money to a uh, school or uh, for a refrigeration or something to that effect where it was going on. Giving charity was never something that was just a line item. It became a part of his life where the money he made was to be given away in order to make lives better everywhere.
0: That's right. It was connected to his business success. He had a sense that he had been born you know, in a certain place at a certain time with certain skills. And that was basically to make money as a banker. And that had come directly from God. It wasn't anything that he or his father had done. And so he had a responsibility to improve the lot of others in order to do so. And the anecdote you talk about, you know, he was a prodigy, right? When he was 15, his father sent him to Milan with a 19-year-old chaperone to make business. They started trading gold. And he was traveling around to Amsterdam and Paris. And at the time, of course, after World War II, the, the price of gold was fixed. There was no gold trading in Europe, but he had a network that can move gold from Beirut to Kuwait to India and Hong Kong, where his father would send it on, and they could sell it in the local market. So that's what he was doing. And he shows up in Paris at the age of 16. He always looked much older than he really was, and you see photos of him. He looks like a man in his 20s. Um, and the, it was a, uh, an orga- a Jewish educational organization, and someone there helped him get some papers so he could stay in Paris for a while. And he said, okay, I want to do something for you. And they said, well, we need some new refrigerator equipment. And he said, okay, I'll buy it for you. And they had to call Beirut and say, you know, is this this kid for real? (laughs) Um, And, of course, he was for real. And throughout his life, um, when he had business success, which was a lot of the time, he would get on the phone and say, give money to this school, to this synagogue, to this. There's a a famous tomb of a... um, ancient scholar in, outside of Tiberias in Israel, where he funded, you know, rooms and renovations always in the name of his father or his mother. Uh, he would send, you know, a synagogue needed some new prayer books built. Um, the first synagogue that was built in Spain since the Inquisition in the 1970s, they went to him, he agreed to fund it. So he always saw this, it wasn't um an obligation. It was something he took some joy in, and he had a, a couple of staff members whose job it was basically to field requests. And he spent a chunk of his day uh, giving money away.
1: Yeah, I remember there was some part in your book. I don't recall exactly where where it talks about when um, when Assad, the dictator of Syria in the 90s, which was keeping the small Jewish community of 4,000 or so, the Aleppoian <coughs> Jews uh, specifically, and Damascus Jews there as hostages, wouldn't let them leave. They finally, he finally agreed to let them leave, but there was something. If you could just share, that they needed to buy a round trip ticket, uh, airline ticket. Talk about that.
0: Yeah. So, I <clears> said <throat> Edmunds family first left uh, Aleppo to Beirut in the twenties. Many, some of his family members remained there. After the forties, people started to trickle out and leave. Uh, by the eighties or nineties, there were a few thousand left. And they were essentially hostages to Assad, who was the dictator. Um, throughout the 80s, he was personally keeping that community afloat. I have these amazing letters in, in French from the de Aleppo, the rabbis of Aleppo, in the 80s, saying, "You know, we need this much money to keep the school open, to have high holiday services." And he was um, keeping them afloat. In the early 90s, the U.S. remember after the the, the war in Kuwait. Assad had joined that U.S. coalition to kind of push Hussein out of Kuwait. And so there was some leverage there. They were trying to get them to talk to Israel. Um, Assad was looking for some funding. And they saw this as a moment and said, maybe we can get the remaining Jews out of Syria. So there's a lot of pressure applied. And he agreed, Assad agreed, but his conceit was, you know, I'm not letting them go. They're going to have to all buy round-trip tickets. I'm just going to let them leave for a bit and they have to come back. So they all have to buy round-trip plane tickets. And someone picked up a phone and said, Edmund, we need round trip plane tickets for 4,000 people. And he gave them the check and they all left. Yeah. And that was the sort of thing he did. And That was on a, um, an individual basis, but he also did things on you know, what we would call more of an institutional basis. He endowed uh, chairs in uh, history at, at Harvard University. In the 70s, he set up a, it's called the, um, you know, for underprivileged students in Israel, Education fund to send kids to college. And that was set up like as a foundation even in the 1970s. So it wasn't just like him writing a check or making the decision. It had a professional staff and was systematically deploying capital. Um, But he really saw it as his personal uh, mission and ambition and joy to do these sorts of things.
1: You know, during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, and a little before that, uh, banks were dropping like flies, Wachovia, Washington. They were wiping out shareholders. The, the uh, equity was going virtually to zero. The banks had such risky loans, and they were disintegrating. But the you know board of directors, they walked away scot clean. There was no liability to them because they have uh, insurance. They have um, um, directors and officers liability insurance. The CEOs walked away with all the money they made over time, So the ones who got hurt were basically the shareholders. And in some cases, uh, you know, the FDIC stepped in and and insured the depositors. And uh, Buffett said, Warren Buffett said at the time, that if he was running things, I don't remember exactly, maybe you could fill in the blanks, but it's something to the effect of, I'd only let a bank foreclose or go out of business and get FDIC insurance or have the taxpayer pick it up. Only when they are wiped out, they are wiped out. Their their wife is wiped out, their spouse, and they have no equity, nothing left. Only then will I pay them. Uh, and here with uh, with Suffer, you, you write that, and I, and I just want to quote this: uh, Edmund said about republic is, "No one will lose a penny in republic before I lose everything I have." Sure.
0: So you know what you're talking about, right? Is a is a, a governance issue, right? That, We have, you got the CEO and you got the directors who are supposed to supervise him or her, and they may have some very small ownership stake, but they're there for a few years. If something happens, they have insurance. It's really no skin off their back if things go south. And we see this time and time again in in the corporate world. Um, For Edmund Safra, every business where he came from was by definition a family business. So there was no... His banks, yes, they had directors, but it was a family business. It was, he owned 30% of the equity. He was hoping to pass it on to the next generation of Safras. It was supposed to exist for a you know, hundred years, a thousand years. Um, and when you have a family business, there's no such thing as saying, you know, if something goes bad and the senior executives get off scot-free, they're wiped out, right? That's that's what your family business is. And so he brought that mentality combined with the fact that when he started in Beirut, and also in Switzerland in the 50s, there was no deposit insurance. There was no such thing as deposit insurance. You couldn't go to the government or have someone bail you out. And he often believed that even though he had this very large bank in the U.S., that because he was a, you know, a foreigner, he wasn't a U.S. citizen, that they wouldn't bail him out. Like he didn't really think somehow that the insurance would apply to his depositors. So he always ran the banks um, in that manner. And if you, if your mindset is that right, that the first person to suffer a loss is me. You're going to make very different decisions about how you put your money to work.
1: Right. And, and, and how you view your, your customers. your yes. right? customers are not just fodder for you to take in, you know, a one, it's a, yeah. it's a call option. If you do well, yeah. you make a lot of money. If you don't, ah, big deal. It was not, you know, well, it, it was
0: not a one-sided deal. And here's the, you know, in the banking world, Right. Deposits are a, a, a bank's liability on the balance sheet, right?
1: Well, because let me, like, just, let me just because they owe that yes. money to the depositors. It's really right. The, the bank is holding it on their balance sheet That's as right. a liability for John Jones who gave it to the bank.
0: That's right. And so it's it's treated on, on their balance sheet as a liability. You know, I owe you the deposits, and in the world, you know, you don't want to have liability. What you want to have is assets. And a loan you make is an asset. Edmund Safra had it flipped the other way. He kind of viewed the deposits, that was his asset because he could put that money to work, he could help people, he would protect their deposits, it would bolster the image and the um, actual power of his banks if he had more money to put to work. And he always fretted, he thought the loans, that was the liability, that's what he was worried about because if someone didn't pay him back then he felt it was on him. And so that's another, I think, distinctive approach that he brought Again, due to his own mentality and to where he grew up and how he operated. And then again, I think explains a lot of his success. And I think if you're looking for lessons that are applicable today, you know, the people who succeed are often people who who sort of flip the formula on its head, right? Because there are a lot of crowded trades in the world. A lot of people piling into the same thing. And the people who have the sort of divergent view are often the people who end up succeeding. And I I feel like if more people had a uh, mentality that what what is a liability for everybody else could be an asset for me, and what everyone else thinks is an asset is actually a liability, um, I think there are big opportunities for sort of, not just for profit, but for having more effective systems. Yeah,
1: And even the fact of, uh, I recall you, you wrote somewhere that uh, when uh, some deal was not going well with his brothers uh, who lived in Brazil, who weren't part of the bank per se, uh, and uh, his concern was, the press and the media and and customers won't see, make the distinction. A sufferer is a sufferer. So we have to make That's sure right. they're good as well. So the name yeah. was everything. That's right. Right. Okay. So his name was his asset. And that was a, a reputation, as Buffett says, that it takes a lifetime to build and only moments to lose. And I want you to talk about just uh, briefly how his reputation was sullied in such a way that physically and literally almost destroyed him, and this was against American Express with Trade Development Bank. Could you just give us a brief overview of what happened and how he was vindicated at the end and how he learned from, and and which I find so amazing, is Jim Robinson, who was running American Express, was a friend of his. So if you could just go through what there was, I think it was a book written about that in 1992.
0: Yeah, so first of all, there's an entire book written about this episode by Brian Burrow. Brian Burrow is one of the authors of Barbarians at the Gate, very well-known financial journalist. Um, He wrote an entire, like, 500-page book. And briefly, in the early 80s, uh, Edmund uh, sold his Swiss private bank to American Express. American Express wanted a private bank. He was concerned about emerging market debt that he had a lot of and felt like, you know, this is a good time to sell it. And the agreement was that he would stay on and, and work at American Express, which of course was never going to work because Edmund was like a king in his own court at his companies. He was not a, a manager or someone who ever reported to anybody. Um, after a year or two, they had a bit of a falling out, and he they negotiated an exit, and uh, the terms of the exit were that you know a five-year non-compete, so he could not open a, a new private bank until 1988, um, and. You know, starts making plans to do so and at some point someone within american express <clears throat> uh, put the word out or encouraged what turned out to be a smear campaign against him where there was a contractor and in the 80s late 80s 1988 these articles started appearing in the press in places like peru and Wait, france hang, this hang is on all... a second
1: hang, dan hang on a second yeah. What motivated them? Their, their concern, American Express's concern at the time was that Suffer wasn't going to keep his five-year non-compete or that he was going to take customers from them. What was their concern that this smear campaign started? I think the
0: concern was that when he opened in 1988, when he was going to open, that a lot of their customers would leave and that he would be a competitor.
1: Right. So Trade Development Bank, no matter what label was on there, you could put American Express because they wanted to fold this in to their financial supermarket. Bottom line, they realized that even with Edmund out of the picture, it really didn't matter. They were Edmund's customers. And where Edmund went, they're going to go. So they realized <coughs> you, they're not going to integrate them. And I think you're right, which, I, which is so amazing. Here's a man who kept the privacy and secrecy of his customers as as a, as a an overriding theme. It, it was it was. It was San You didn't mess with that. And here is American Express mailing them of literature and marketing material on getting credit cards and and going to concerts and taking advantage of all bunch of things. And what the freak is this?
0: Well, I think mean, that you know it's standard practice in banking. But I think there was an element of that. Yes, that that the the partnership or that transaction was probably destined not to, to work out. Um, so yes, he was he was intent on opening the bank. I think there was some fear. Um, but Edmund, but I just to make, I
1: want to make it clear. Edmund was not violating the five-year non-compete. It was the fear that he, that he was going to open in 1988. He didn't do anything to violate that five-year non-compete. Is that correct or not?
0: Yeah. He was taking steps to open it, and some people were drifting away you know, that had worked for him in the past to rejoin him. It was clear what he was doing um but he he was going through the usual usual process that you do in switzerland
1: right and he did not make a secret of it so they were totally informed what he was planned on doing
0: yeah yeah. um so these articles start to appear in again publications in peru in uh france that say you know Edmund Safford's a drug dealer he's involved with iran contra etc and over a course of several years uh, a year he hired private investigators, and he also sued to, you know, the, the libel laws in Europe are very different than they are in the U.S. So he sued to get people to retract those um, uh, statements and those articles. And it became evident um, that somebody acting, you know, on behalf of American Express or at the orders of a one of their employees had planted all this information. And they eventually, you know, unraveled it. And then c- when they confronted American Express at the highest level, to their credit, uh, they looked into it and said, geez, it seems like something bad happened here. And they issued an apology and, and they gave several million dollars in donations to charities that Edmund had stipulated. He didn't want any litigation. He didn't want a legal settlement. He'd said, I just want an apology and I want you to give money to these charities. Yeah, and he didn't want Let's any money day.
1: For, he didn't want any money for his legal fees, which were enormous and his the private detectives and all of that he didn't want any money for any defamation of character he didn't want any money of that he just wanted a public apology and a donation to charities is that right
0: yep yep and that's what happened and he then went on with his career but i think it was a certainly for him one of his low points and as i said there's a an entire 500 page book uh, called Vendetta by Brian Burrow, which is where, frankly, a lot of the the information that I relied on comes from. Um, and so, if people want to investigate that further, that's got yeah. the you know all the details.
1: You know, I remember when that was playing out, reading it in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, uh, I also too uh, grew up and lived in the Brooklyn uh, Syring Jewish community. And Edmund Safra, when he did come to town, it was a big event. And uh, just on the side, I tried to get an internship there in 1980, but that was the start of a recession and they were firing people. So I, I, I would love to have been uh, associated with that bank, but so be it. Uh, so, um, and I remember reading it in the journal and, and other places where I was talking about it just seemed just, you know, knowing who it was money laundering, dealing with uh, the Russian mob, uh, drug cartels. It's just, yeah, this, this is a man who wouldn't lend to anyone who he didn't know. And here he he was, he needed to do that. You got to be crazy. It was ludicrous to anyone who knew him.
0: Yeah. I was, I mean, pretty close. sorry, let me just say,
1: ludicrous to anyone who knew of him,
0: because I did not know him personally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the thing about his life, I think one of the reasons, frankly, to do this book, say he, you know, he died in 1999, is that because of who he was, and where he came from and the way he carried himself there was always in his lifetime suspicion about him because when you know when he shows up in brazil he's a lebanese guy when he shows up in switzerland he's a brazilian guy when he shows up in new york he's you know he, he's not a what we call an ashkenazi jew he's not a jew from europe he's a jew from the middle east who are you know they're different they speak a different language they have different customs they have different habits so you know that like sociologists talk about like the other like we're Often, whenever he went somewhere, he was like the outsider. Um, that gave him often an advantage in business because outsiders often understand things about the way systems work and are able to connect the dots in a way that insiders aren't. But it also meant that he, you know, he knew what it was not to be immediately accepted, um, to have people be suspicious of you just based on what your name is, what language you speak, your accent, um, and that was something he confronted you know, his whole life in in many different circumstances.
1: Right. So, okay. I want to fast forward a bit because we're running out of time is that uh, in his early 60s, he comes down with Parkinson's disease and he has no heirs. He has no children of his own. No one's going to be carrying on this business. And his concern was so much so for his babies, his banks and his customers and, and, and how they would fare that he makes a very, very painful decision. And that's to sell the bank. Sure. And uh, which I find so amazing is that when HSBC, I forget who the chairman was at the time, uh, who was uh, John Bond. John Bond. Yeah, when John Bond, John Bond didn't know about Safra. He reads Vendetta, and he says, "Well, this guy, you know, uh, that this guy is a stand-up guy. He's just an amazing uh, human being." And and by the way, all the screens that consultants come up with, there is no better bank than uh, Republic in terms of its profitability, its loan loss provisions, its loans, its it, its write-offs. And also with Trade Development Bank, it just jumps to the top as being a, just a, a stellar. You know, you mentioned Buffett-like returns, 20-plus percent returns compounded for long periods. That is amazing, especially during some of the terrible stock market period we had from the late 60s to 82. And he was he was returning amazing re- rates of return. Yeah.
0: So you know, to the story of the sale, you know, this, this book is in many ways a story of personal triumph against adversity, of you know, basically conquering the world. Wherever he went, he went to the center of the action. He started a bank, made a lot of money, built institutions, formed relationships, great success story, culminating culminating in this $10 billion sale, which nets him about $3 billion, which in 1999 was a lot of money. But there's also an element of tragedy, um, and there are three principal tragedies in his life. One, he got Parkinson's in the early 90s as still a pretty young man, early 60s and it started to debilitate not just his functioning, but you know, his mental ability and uh, you know, view of the future. Um, second, you know he died in 1999 in a fire, which was set by a member of his household staff. So that was another tragedy. And the third tragedy, if you asked him what was the biggest tragedy, it was neither of those. It was the fact that he had to sell his banks, and that there was gonna be no Safra Bank beyond his existence. Because in his world, again, his father and grandfather had been bankers He viewed all business as a family business. His brothers, he had set them up in business in Brazil. They had their own very large bank. He was sort of hoping that it would continue. Um, One way in which he really diverged from his community, um, most Syrian Jews of that era, they would get married in their late 20s and have to a younger woman and have four or five children. Um, And if they had sons, they would bring them into the business. Edmund in his 20s and 30s was... a nomad. He was traveling around the world between Beirut, Geneva, New York, Paris, London. He didn't really have the capacity to sort of settle down, be a parent in that way, so he got married later in life to a woman, Lily Safra, who had her own children, Um, but he didn't have his own children, and therefore he didn't have an heir or someone to uh, to bring into the business. He and his brothers tried to work something out whereby one would succeed him, but they they couldn't figure out how to do that. And so he reaches this conclusion that, you know what, I have to sell my banks. I have to sell them to somebody good. I have to sell them to someone who will pay cash because I don't wanna have stock in somebody else that I can't control. And that's how he settled on HSBC. And when they announced the sale, um, again, in any business story, that would have been the crowning achievement. You sell it, you walk away with all the cash, and now you can do whatever you want with your life. That's that's business success in our world. You cash out, you monetize, you have an IPO. Um, and for him, that was a failure. Uh, one of his friends came from Switzerland and said, you know, congratulations, Edmund. And he said in, in uh, French, j'ai vendu mes enfants, which means I've sold my children, I've sold my babies. And so for him, it was a, it was a, a moment of sadness that he was selling his banks, not a moment of triumph, um, but for the world, it was actually a—it uh, was actually something of a triumph because you know he died later that year, and he left a very large chunk of his assets to his foundation, which in the twenty years since his death has been funding on a very large scale uh, Parkinson's research, education, professorships, um, publishing, uh, construction of synagogues, preservation of communities. And so the, the work that was important to him during his life has really continued on and will continue on for, for decades to come, even though there is no financial institution that bears the name of Edmund Safra today.
1: Yeah. You know, before, before you go, I just, I really think this is one of the most, I, I didn't know anything of this. And I just think it's absolutely amazing because it speaks to what type of man he was, that when he closed the deal with HSBC, with the $72 a share. Sure. And uh, there was a loss of $450 million that Edmund decided to eat himself and take it out of his, his shares, uh, his, his uh, proceeds. $150 million, which could have been 100% legitimately <coughs> discounted off the price, distributed to everyone equally, and instead of $72 a share, everyone would have got a little less. Could you just lead up to that? What was that $450 million? Why he, did he decide to eat it himself? Sure and make everybody whole.
0: So again, he decides to sell the bank uh, for about $10 billion. It comes out to $72 a share. 72, of course, is four times 18. And 18 was a significant number um, to Edmund Safra from a religious perspective. Um, And in the interim, so the deal is made in April or May. It's supposed to close in September or October. Uh, In those months, there is a there was a, a, a trader named Martin Armstrong who had a financial services organization and he raised money from the public to do certain investments. Um, and he was committing fraud and a an employee at Re, one of Republic's subsidiaries had sort of helped him by issuing some account statements that turned out to be false. This comes to the attention of the SEC and the Justice Department and it's clear they're gonna go after Armstrong. Um, Edmund concludes and HSBC realizes there's probably going to be some liability because of some person, you know, this other employee was an employee of Republic and was sort of implicated in this in some way. HSBC says, well, we got to reconsider when we're going to close, what the price, you know, these sorts of things happen. Litigation always comes up in deals. And Edmund's response was, well, I want this to close at $72 a share for all the other shareholders. There's probably gonna be a cost of between the liability and what you'll have to pay, let's say it's $450 million. I'm effectively going to give you HSBC that money by taking $450 million less for my shares. So everybody else, you know, if you have 100 shares, you're gonna get 7,200 bucks. If you have a million shares, you're gonna get 72 million. For my big chunk of shares, instead of getting $72 a share, I would get what that total is minus 450 million. So I will eat whatever that future liability is associated with this. And him doing that gave HSBC the confidence to say, okay, we will go ahead and close now. We know whatever happens, we are going to be covered because we're we're putting out $450 million less. John Bond, who again was the CEO of HSBC, was sort of stupefied by this, flies to his home in uh, the south of France to sort of, you know, I really have to come and shake your hand, and that was, that's, that's how that deal got done in the
1: end. Yeah, it's just amazing who would do something like that. You know, it's just absolutely staggering to, uh, to take it out of, and it, by the way, if he would have uh, lowered the price, there would have been a price adjustment, no one would have said boo. It would have been just part of the deal. And it happens yeah. every single time, not every single time, but many times there's provisions taken on the side, and it's part of doing business. But uh, Suffred yeah. was a personal It was a personal matter. He stood behind and, you know, it's easy to talk the talk, but when you have to put up the money, that's when it becomes difficult. But to him, it was not even a choice.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, there's a phrase we use, you know, it's nothing personal, it's just business.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: In his world, everything was personal. Um, That, yes, of course, you could have disagreements with people. You could have bitter competitors. um, But the way you conducted yourself in business should not be different from how you conduct yourself, you know, in your personal affairs and what, and the kind of treatment you would expect from somebody from a family member, from a friend, or even from just like common decency from a stranger. That is how you should approach, you know, your business matters as well.
1: Yeah. Outstanding Dan. Thank you so much, folks. The name of the book is a banker's journey. How Edmund J. Safra built a global financial empire. And I think Dan, this is the first biography on the man. Is that right?
0: (laughs) This is the first, yeah, sort of full-on published biography of Edmund Safra, for sure.
1: Wow. And, uh, you know, continued success. I think you did an outstanding job, and you shed light in an area which most people had zero idea about. I knew some of the stories, but the detailing it was just absolutely amazing, and you had uh, you had the archives in front of you, so, so really a real tremendous, tremendous job. Thanks so much for being on the show, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate your interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.